0: Welcome, Hoosier fans, to another edition of Banner Monday, where we begin the week the best way we know how, by talking Indiana basketball and Big Ten hoops. And uh, before we get started, a few quick housekeeping notes off the top of the show. Uh, please keep supporting our friends at Homefield Apparel by going to homefieldapparel.com and using the promo code Assembly20, which gets you 20% off your entire order. And if you uh, are looking to support local food banks, you can either do that by going to foodpantries.org to find ones in your area uh, or go to feedingamerica.org. So again, uh, a lot going on right now, just a couple ways that you can help out if you are so inclined. And now I'm pleased to welcome in from the Big Ten Network, the Sporting News, and Fox, one of the hardest working men in college hoops. Even when there are no college hoops to cover, it's the venerable Mike deCourcy Mike, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm great,
1: Andy. How are you?
0: Uh, I'm doing pretty well. The weather is nice. I've definitely come to find that uh, working from home, it's a big difference when the uh, when the sun is shining in the window uh, in here, and uh, it's a beautiful day here in Cincinnati. as it? I, I, it looked like it is uh, in Indianapolis where you are. So, um, I think I'm, I'm hanging in there as best as as best as I can. Um, before we get into college hoop stuff, uh, I'm assuming, like most basketball fans, you uh, you took in the first couple episodes of The Last Dance uh, last night. Any uh, any overarching impressions of it from you as you look to figure out how you're going to pass the time until next Sunday when the next two come out? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I was, I I have to be honest, I I was, I I understand because of the framing of the documentary as being about the final season of the dynasty, you had, in order to tell it it as the final season of the dynasty, you had to tell the story of why it was the final season of the dynasty and making it the final season of the dynasty definitively was the worst decision Jerry Krause ever made as a major league executive. It was a terrible decision. It was an indefensible decision. Uh, Really no good reason for it, at least in the way it was executed. Uh, If they had come back in 1999 and lost, and then they decided to go ahead with a rebuild, it would have made sense. But to essentially declare, this is the last year we're doing it this way, when you're in the middle of a run of two championships in consecutive years and four in six years, five, excuse me, five in seven years. I mean, there's just no logical explanation for that. At the same time, Jerry Krause was also the executive to put the whole thing together, with the exception of the drafting of Michael Jordan. And trust me, if he'd been in the GM spot uh, a year earlier, he would have drafted Michael Jordan. That was the easy part. So I, he, he put together a championship team, two championship teams, if you want to consider the division. He's in a Hall of Fame... I mean, he did some great things. And the documentary really painted him as an absolute fool, at least t- through the first two episodes. Maybe as we go later into this series, we'll see more about how shrewd uh, an evaluator and an acquirer of talent Krauss was. Uh, but there wasn't much of that. And I-, I felt I mean, Jerry's not with us any longer. He can't defend himself. Um you know he, he's in the Hall of Fame for what he accomplished. I know he had some very strong advocates in the media uh, for that honor, uh, and some of the loudest voices in in uh, American sports media, and particularly those who cover the NBA. So I, I thought it was thought it was awfully rough on him, and I felt badly about that. But it certainly was very fascinating television. I'm not sure that uh, you know it, it, if you if you read Twitter, you you got the impression that this was the godfather of all sports documentaries. And I'm not willing to go along with that. I don't even know that I would put it as one of the, I don't think it's even the Rocky of sports documentaries. It was very good. At least so far, it was very good, but uh, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not sure I'd give it a five-star review.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It was one of those things. I think once the, between the buildup and the fact that everybody's clamoring for any kind of sports, I think it would probably be tough to live up to any of that Uh, at any point. So, uh, I guess we'll, uh, I guess we'll see how the other episodes play out. I did think the Jerry cross stuff was, was interesting in the way that he was treated by some of the players. Um, and they kind of on a surface level touched on some of the moves that he made that were, you know, that helped really build what was there, but those didn't seem to get to your point. Um, as much, uh, as much, attention, I guess, if you will, um, as, as the other stuff. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see how it plays out over the next few episodes, but it'll be, it'll be interesting for sure. Uh, as we get to that, but, uh, all right, well, let's get to, uh, let's actually get to some college basketball stuff right now. And, uh, and one of the big things that came out non IU related, uh, last week was that, uh, the, the Jalen Green, Story or or non-story, depending upon <laughs> depending upon your your perspective on it. And I've I've read yours, so I know where you'll fall on this. But um, so I I guess you know much was made of Jalen Green going to this new developmental G League. Um, so so what do we actually know about about what that league is going to be besides how much money he's make going to make, which was really one of the only details that was uh, prominently uh, portrayed out there.
1: Well, the first thing we know is it's not a league. I mean, that, they, there have been headlines, a lot of headlines, and, and uh, unfortunate headlines that are saying that Jalen Green is going to play in the G League. And if Jalen Green were going to play in the G League and the NBA wanted to pay him a half million dollars to do that, you know, go with God. Great. We'll do what you want to do. But that's not what's happening. I mean, they are, con- they are, they are putting together what is essentially a professional AAU team for him. Uh, only the, there's bigger stakes in 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 AAU games than there is in any game that he will play in until he enters the NBA draft. I, I, I I'm just uh, nonplussed at the the fact that the NBA would go this far out of its way to have one of its most promising prospects not play any games that matter. I just I that, that makes no sense to me at all. It's one thing to play in a in a, in a minor league where not very many people really care that much who wins or loses. Coach cares, so maybe, so he's going to work to because it reflects on him. So he's going to work to make sure you win. Not every not everybody who's playing cares. They more care about how they look because because their objective is not to win the G League championship. It's to get the heck out of the G League. That's the number one objective for every player in the G League. Well, for Jalen Green and others like him, the number one objective was to never get into the G League. And so he's not going to be. He's going to be on this developmental entity, whatever they want to call it, the, the pathway to the, it, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, basically, it's a device that they put together so they don't have to get on a plane two, three times a winter and, tra- and travel to Australia. Because uh, Australia, for reasons I don't really quite understand, decided they were willing to pay American teenagers multiple hundreds of thousands of dollars to be mediocre in their basketball. And that's what happened. I mean, LaMelo Ball did some good things on a terrible team. RJ Hampton didn't do a ton. Uh, So they they, they paid a lot of money for that. I don't know whether they would have continued that directive into a second season, given the lack of great success that either of them had. Uh, But they had wanted to do it. And the NBA thought that it was uh, not necessarily a good thing for some of their better prospects to be going that far afield. Uh, to get training. Uh, They didn't want to be in college. They wanted to get paid right away, whatever. Uh, And so they put together this program. I'm not a fan of it. Uh, I, I I am less a fan of the myriad takes that it was going to be very damaging to NCAA basketball, including a headline in the Wall Street Journal that said, is this the end of college basketball as we know it? I mean, I just—I I mean, I was just blown away by that one, and it just shows an absolute, complete lack of understanding about college basketball, uh, an absolute, complete lack of grasp of history, and, and, and when I, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to know what like was happening with the Magna Carta. I mean, this was 20 years ago. We had we had players go directly from high school to the NBA from 1995 until 2006. And that included some unbelievable talent. Kevin Garnett, Kobe Bryant, greatest player of all time, LeBron James. All three of those players never played a minute in college. And would it have been cool to see LeBron James in a college uniform, uh, you know, doing the things that only LeBron can do? Absolutely would have been cool, but he didn't. And what happened? College basketball attendance pretty much the same. It's been pretty much constant college basketball attendance has been a pretty much a constant for my entire career. I went all the way back and, and assessed basically the, the best way to do it because the numbers change based on size of venue and this and that. So I went and I looked at the number one team in attendance, the number 15 team in attendance, and the number 30 team in attendance for the ten years before players started getting drafted out of high school, or the for ten for the the last ten years that they were, which out, out of out of eleven, and then for the most recent ten years, and the numbers are almost identical all the way through. It doesn't change, and the, you don't get as big a television numbers for the Final Four now as you did in nineteen ninety two or nineteen eighty nine or whatever. But nothing in television gets as good a ratings because the channel universe. And the actual uh, viewing universe has splintered a thousand different directions. I mean, you had when I was a young person, you had four channels. When I became a young adult, you had maybe thirty-five or forty, and now you you have six hundred on your television. Plus, you have Amazon, uh, uh, Netflix, and and all the rest. CBS All Access, and all the And so you don't get, but you still get great ratings relative to everything else on television. You're getting 20, 23 million viewers to watch the championship game, depending on the year, depending on who's playing. You're getting just tremendous audiences. And so it hasn't, it hasn't changed. And so the idea that because one or two or five or even 10 players wouldn't play in college basketball. All of a sudden, the whole enterprise would decline or collapse. It's just preposterous. And yet that was written by a lot of people in a lot of very prominent outlets last week.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny because we talked about this a little bit on Assembly Call Radio last week. and And, you know, I kind of ended it up by saying, look, it has to be in order for it to truly impact college basketball. It has to be such a large number of players. Because I think in one of the things you wrote, I mean, really over the last handful of years, even if you go back to Brandon Jennings, the number of players, top players that it's really impacted has been negligible given the period of time that we're looking at. So you've got to find something that will appeal to them, have enough people to want to do it. And then there has to be a tangible benefit that says doing this is better. And maybe the money is the only benefit that you need, but doing this is better for furthering my career. I mean, You've seen players go overseas. To your point, Lamelo Ball is really one of the only ones who seems to maybe benefit from a draft perspective by that, depending upon whose mock draft you look at. But in general, that you know, it hasn't been lauded for the player development, you know, the development of the players who've gone that route. It hasn't been lauded for really anything other than a way to make money. Um, and for some people, that might be enough. But to me, those two things need to happen for it really to impact enough people to impact college basketball, because otherwise it's just kind of another blip, like any of these other things have been, as you said.
1: I think there are a few things to look at in that. First of all, the developmental piece, Um, this is completely untried. And, and I still, I don't see how it's beneficial to a young athlete to have less competition. I don't see how that makes a player better that it's you're just not going to convince me because otherwise we wouldn't practice at all. I mean, you just shoot jumpers and then go play. I mean, how, why, why would you have practice if, if competing for something and in college basketball, you are competing to in practice, to be part of a team, you compete in practice to get more minutes, to get a greater role in the offense to if you're a defensive specialist to show that you are capable of shutting down the other team's opposing best player, and and then you compete in those games to win a championship that's meaningful to you, or multiple, you know, a a, a series of championships that are meaning to you, conference, conference tournament, NCAA's. Uh, so that all that all adds to something, adds up to something. And I don't think that this directive adds has has covers you in any of those. So I, that's my first. Thing about uh, the, the circumstance uh, th- another thing about the projection that this is the death knell for college basketball is the fact that so many of them didn't consider at all the idea that name image and likeness is coming and you may think that it's that it's your that you need to do your part to make it happen by saying, well, clearly the NCAA is going to heck in a handbasket because, you know, now every kid's going to be able to make 500 grand out of high school. Uh, look, I don't know what the numbers are going to be, and I don't know how the eventual NCAA name, image, and likeness rule will be structured. No one does. People in the room do, but I don't. But I can tell you this, they're going to do it. I can say that was absolute certainty as someone who has covered college athletics for 35 years. The NCAA and its membership do not get this public about a about an initiative, and then not do it. They don't take the ball to the one yard line and say, eh, "I don't think we're going to cross the goal line on this one." If they decide that they're going to do something and they make it this clear that they're going in that direction, they don't abandon that direction. It's never happened in my 35 years of covering college sports. So you will have name, image, and likeness in fairly short order, and I don't know when exactly could be 2022, 21-22. It could be that season. could be, I, I don't know that they'll get it in place for 2021. There's so much other stuff going on right now, but it'll happen. And then the third thing is you mentioned about the money. I mean, J- Jalen Green's going to make a half million dollars to, to be out of sight, out of mind for a year. The only thing, the only way he ever gets into the public consciousness is if he dunks something really cool and somebody has a video camera on it when they're playing an exhibition game. I mean, that's it. Like, and it'll be put on Twitter and everybody will say, oh, look, Jalen Green can dunk. But he's not going to do of anything of, of any consequence in any game of any consequence because he's not going to play in it. Zion Williamson made, I, it depends on how you want to look at, it, but just in endorse, endorsements. From playing at Duke, made somewhere north of $50 million for one year, even though he didn't have the money in his pocket during his time at Duke. He walks out of Duke and he makes fifty million. He makes $75 million. And, and, and being very conservative and attributing only $50 million of that to his time at Duke, but it's probably more, he was a popular figure on the internet. So you can assume that he would have had some value to the shoe companies if he had, again, just sort of hit out in, Uh, in in L.A. for a year, he would have had some value, but not $75 million worth of value, not not a chance. He became a national celebrity during his one year at Duke. He became so ubiquitous as a figure that at a certain point, ESPN felt in their crawl, they didn't even have to use his last name. It takes up too much space, so they just put Zion scored 35 points and grabbed 20 rebounds or whatever he did. They didn't have to put his last name because everybody knew who they were talking about, and, and so uh, there that's a really important element of this that I that will continue to be available to those who play in NCAA basketball and will not be available to those who choose other directions.
0: Yep, I would agree. All right, let's shift gears and talk a little bit of Big Ten. So, just wanted to talk through. Uh, the list of players testing the waters and, and which ones you think are most likely to return. So at this point, Jalen Smith has said he's not coming back. That one's a done deal. Uh, Daniel Oturu is the other one. I can't quite tell, but I think I read the Evan Daniel story that I saw. It made it seem like he may not have formally said, I'm not coming back, but it seems incredibly likely that he's not. So I'm going to assume, let's just, let's take both those guys out of the mix. Um, so the list that I have, Marcus Carr from Minnesota, uh, the two guys from Illinois, Kofi Coburn and Io. Luca Garza, Isaiah Livers, Xavier Tillman, and Caleb Wesson. Um, so, of those, what is that? Seven names? Six? Um, give me, give me the couple that you think are most likely to be back in college uh, next fall.
1: No, I think other than Io, who I expect, I, I think if he was going to stay in in college, he would have probably not filed. Uh, I think, I, I think he was waiting for a while to make sure that it looked right and. I think the only thing that IO would get out of another year at Illinois was one, the opportunity to do, it's a given opportunity to do college things. So whether it's be a college student, uh, be a college kid or play college basketball, that's a given. But in terms of actual um, basketball, the one thing that could be gained for him would be to become a more consistent jump shooter If, if he was not going to come back, as an you know and 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 assure that through offseason work and 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 just training and coaching whatever it took he, if he was not going to come back and make himself into a 35 36 37% jump shooter at, uh, from three point range at minimum then it wasn't worthwhile i mean that's the one thing that he could get if he came back and shot 38% he'd be a top 15 pick he's got everything else and so i understand why he would say Okay, it's I think I'm ready Uh, to the extent that, you know, I've got everything covered except that I can get that up there. And I do think he can. Uh, I think it's taken a little longer, but I think he can. Um, uh, You do look at some of the others. Uh, Xavier Tillman, I don't expect to be back. He's got two children now Uh, and and has shown himself to be a very capable player. I think he'll play professionally next year. I was on a conference call with uh, Chris Holtman a week ago or so. And he talked about Caleb Wesson as uh, pretty much a done deal. Uh, You know, said very kind things about what how much he developed and and what he'd done for the program and seemed to indicate. He talked about him as if Caleb had been a senior, uh, as if you know, the same way one would talk about, say, Devontae Green. Uh, and so uh, those are the ones that I expect not to be back. I think I would be surprised if the others were not. If this, you know, disappointed for them because I don't think any of the others uh, has established himself as being ready for the NBA, and certainly not ready to be drafted. Uh, Kofi Coburn, I think, it has real talent, but. Has a lot to add to his game, a lot to learn. Uh, Marcus Carr, I think, has a chance to be a pro, but I think he still has to grow as a point guard. I don't think he's, he played one year for a team that was terrible uh, at Pitt uh, and in an absolute train wreck situation, and then he played one year on a capable team. and And I think that uh, I think the opportunity to come back there and be an even more prominent part of what they're doing, uh, I think it would serve him well. Uh, so I, I, Isaiah livers, I think Isaiah livers understands and my disappointment for guys like Isaiah, uh, for really any of the players on the list that has the option of coming back or, or, or is leaning toward coming back. It's disappointing for any of them to not be able to participate in the process. Cause I think there's real value to going to, uh, to an individual workout or to, uh, or to, um, uh, play at the combine. If you get invited. Now, I've used two different analogies to sort of describe what you get out of that. One is if you're someone who who has taken the SAT a couple of times, you take it the first time, you try to get the best score you can, but it's really that second time that you feel like, okay, I know what to expect. I know what they're going to ask of me. That's the one you should get the good score on because you've gone through it before. And the other part of it is kind of like a summer internship. Uh, You get to see what the professional world is like, what the working world is like, what are they, what's, what's it like out there. But with, at the same time, you're still a college kid and, and you still, you haven't, you know, you're, you're not all the pressure and, and responsibility of being a professional isn't on you, but you get into that world a little bit and you get a feel for what it's about. And so I think both of those things, the young players are going to be missing. It's obviously not as big as missing the NCAA tournament, but, uh, You Isaiah, I'm not sure what, you know, Luca and Isaiah and guys like that are really even getting out of this because as long as there are no individual workouts and there won't be because it doesn't even look like the draft will happen until August or September. uh, And there there won't be a combine certainly in advance of that, you know, in the usual May slot. So uh, other than the opportunity to say, hey, uh, I'm going to try and be, hey, guess what? I'm back and everybody gets excited because I'm back. Um, I'm not sure really what there is in it for them. You can get an evaluation from an NBA team, uh, very easily. You don't have to, you don't have to, you, you don't have to put your name on the list to get that. Uh, you can get a a good evaluation from, from professional scouts, either friends of your coach or, uh, you know, the league will do it for you. You don't have to be on the early entry list to get it. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I the, the funny thing about that, Hey, I'm back deal is, um, Jeremiah Robinson Earl from Villanova never even put his name in the list, but he still had an, he got a, still got a, Hey, I'm back release. And so everybody from Villanova got to be excited about Jeremiah playing another year.
0: Yeah, that's true. That's true. So you can, you can still have it both ways there. Yeah. I mean, it is unfortunate that, that for the benefits of, of what they've tried to do and expanding that process and, um, and making some changes to it that just the logistics of the way things are right now are going to prevent some of those guys from really getting it. But I think the three guys that you mentioned to theirs in in IO, Xavier Tillman and Wesson seemed the least likely to me to be back. So I think that, uh, I think that that jives with what a lot of uh, a lot of IU fans were expecting. Uh, So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was, um, bracketology a bit. Uh, so we don't really know, uh, certainly how we did this year. We can all assume that we would have done the best job anyone has ever done, uh, at this stage, but, uh, just wanted to, to, as our resident bracketologist kind of get, um, some background from you on, you know, how that came about for you starting to do it this year and, uh, and how, you, while you may have done it informally over the years, uh, you know, kind of how you're one of posting your projections out there uh, went, and uh, and if you plan to do it again next year, I guess
1: I hope I hope Fox will have me back. I, I, I enjoyed it very much. I loved working with the people there. They were just a delight, top to bottom. Jordy Wimmer, the the coordinating producer for college basketball for Fox, was the person who approached me about it. Uh, I, I think that I, I suspect. That I had some encouragement behind the scenes. Uh, if, if my name was brought up to, to Mark Silverman, uh, who used to be the president of Big Ten Network and has always been very kind to me, uh, I, I would. I, he and Mark Halsey, that the vice president at BTN, I'm sure that um, that they were a positive when my name came up. I mean, Fox is a part owner of uh, of the Big Ten Network, so there's a sort of a familial collection connection, so to speak. I've been at BTN now for 11 seasons. So uh, I think they I think they were positive when my name came up as being a possibility to do the brackets and like I said the working with everybody at Fox the, all the, the the producers were fantastic uh, the digital producer uh, Louise Chenard was just great to work with I, I can't say enough about them so if they will have me back believe me I'll do it I did learn some interesting things about the process. Not about the actual selections, but about the reactions to the selections over time. Uh, from the start, uh, I, my first bracket. We what we we don't do the very advanced projections uh, at Fox, and, and I'm and I'm appreciative for that. Uh, I don't put out a bracket until we've got basically two month two full months of games in in the in the tank, and I think that's a, a great way to do it because you really have something to work with. And the first one I put out at that time at that point i think butler was whatever in one and i had them as a three seed. and butler's fans were convinced they should be a one seed, and they went ballistic on me and i and and i got the biggest kick out of it because i didn't think that you know they bracket projection in the middle of january was going to be that much of a, a in you know in terms of uh in terms of intense criticism, I didn't think it would be that, uh, that rough. Uh, and
0: <laughs> I, I got it. It only needs to matter to one fan base. That's really the only thing at that point. Yeah. It, that you know, just, I mean, it, it just compounds on itself at that point. Yeah. you just like,
1: and it, and it, it went with, it, there were different fan bases depending on the bracket over time. And, and I understood as we got closer, um, to the, to the actual selection process, that people would start to get a little antsy. Then I understood that, uh, but I was really surprised by uh, that initial reaction. So I definitely know they're passionate about it, uh, that they're intense about it. Uh, for me, I, I I I was really pleased with how things went in terms of um, in terms of being, uh, you know, not I, I didn't look at the others before. I did my work. I mean, I would do my work and I would see where I was and I'd put it together and we put it out there and then I'd look and and for someone who was doing it for the first time, I didn't feel like I was an outlier or that, uh, I, I, you know, I'd look at their brackets and not think, Oh my gosh, how did I do that? More? So, sometimes I would look at the brackets and say, they they're aren't right about that. I'm the one. <laughs> uh, so I, yeah, I, I felt pretty good about that. And obviously we got to the end and, and, um, and we don't really know uh, what, uh, what would have happened. But I do know this, that on my final bracket, the, one, the, the last one I did, the teams that I had in were basically, there are going to be some, um, you know, some that were just projections because there were still automatic bids that weren't decided. But all in all, I had every single team in the field that the bracket matrix composite had. So I felt really good about that. I mean, there's no guarantee that the matrix is going to be right, uh, that that's what the selection committee is going to do. But that was the only barometer I had. So I used that and felt pretty good about
0: it. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah, The the end is definitely where the passion comes out. The early January of you know, this is a projection as much as like, you know, how much time you spend on it. So you don't want to say like, this doesn't matter. This doesn't mean anything. That was often how I would feel like I wanted to react. But I, you know, knowing you'd put the work in, it was like, well, you can't really admit to yourself that it probably doesn't matter a whole lot what you just spent time doing. But, um, so I know we were talking before you came on, and I, I thought you had brought this up before over the course of the season. So you've had the chance to attend the uh, the mock selection committee a few times. So what are maybe a thing or two that you learned from that process that you carried forward into what you were doing this year, but also are things that, that maybe there are some common misconceptions about based on questions that you would get or uh, complaints you might get might be the real, the real answer. But maybe a thing or two that, that really stands out in that regard.
1: I think one of the misconceptions is about the idea that they create matchups that would look appealing, uh, you know, in terms of storyline. I I will tell you this that there was one point in the season, and I don't remember exactly when it happened, but it was probably mid February um, where Arizona was a seven and Indiana was a 10. And I do the bracket and I put it together and blah, blah, blah. And and then I send it in to Fox and it pops up on their. Twitter and the Instagram and all of that and Facebook and somebody says, Hey, Archie and Sean playing again. And you know, I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I realized that it's a little different because the committee has more time and, but like, I didn't do it for that. I did it because one was a seven, one was a 10 geographically. It fit and you know, in terms of staying away from uh, you know, there may have been too many sevens that were big 10 teams. So you had to stick them with Arizona because that's who it was. And But, I mean, they don't need – by following the rules and trying to exercise their best judgment, which I'd probably agree with them more often than not, but they miss some. They miss, they miss a few really badly. But just exercising judgment and following the bracket rules, you create games like that because college basketball has that interconnection involved. Uh, you know, John Calipari used to work at UMass, used to work at Memphis. If UMass and Memphis are in the field – so one in 32 chance he's going to play one of them. So it, it that's probably the biggest misconception. The second is the probably the idea that there's a conspiratorial nature to it because with the way it's executed with with where you're doing blind voting, you're voting on a computer and the way the system is set up, you vote for like four teams to get in at a, out of a particular eight, you know, that are nominated. And you don't know what everybody else is voting. And so there's there's really no conspiracy, conspiracy to it. Sometimes um, they get it right. Sometimes they get it wrong. I think most of the time they're closer to right than wrong. Uh, but uh, the idea that you know they're out to screw the little guy, it, sometimes I still remember, for instance, in uh, 2008, when Drake was a number five seed and Western Kentucky, played them in the first round. Uh, the, 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 it was presented that it was designed that way to knock out a mid-major and what the person, the people who say that never understand is that you're guaranteeing a mid-major advances. I mean, one of those, if if you played one of them against, you know, like if you played Drake against, let's say Illinois was the 12 seed that year and Western Kentucky was the 12 and, um, let's say.
0: Say Indiana was a five. Just humorous., Okay. Let's experiment. say
1: Indiana, make it a happy. Okay. So Indiana's is the five. You might have no mid majors at the end of that day. They might both lose. So it's just a silly thing, but people keep saying it all the time. Uh, that, that stuff doesn't happen. They do it based on geography way more than they should. That's the one thing I think they do totally wrong. They emphasize geography way too much. They do it based on geography, bracket rules, uh, and how they perceive the teams, and how accomplished they are. And that's really all that goes into it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. You had the Arizona IU. I would always get IU and Houston would be matching up from kind of the same thing. But it how was like you, you, those had, too? you had so many Big Ten teams. And invariably, the first camera would be like, I can totally see the committee putting IU against Samson." And I was like, well, I mean, you could, but it's not really there. You know, with so many Big Ten teams in that muddled oh. area in the middle, there were times like there was just no other person that you could even play. Uh, so yeah, I know I know what you mean there. Um, did did your kind of looking at it through a bracketology lens this year change any of your thoughts on the net ranking and how effective it was, what it meant? It's used so heavily in in bracketing that I was just curious as to whether you you formed a different opinion after this year of it versus the first year.
1: Well, I think it's a significant opinion. Excuse me, a significant improvement over the RPI. I I I I would say that well i was in the analytics meeting that precipitated all of this 4 years ago i think it was and i and i heard every single analytics person uh, basically that was in that room and it's all the usual people the really smart people basically say that you should not combine a predictive metric with a performance metric that you know the predictive metric being something that's based on on uh, possessions and things like that, and how you're going to and, and and how you're going to grade out in relative to the point spread and all that sort of stuff, and the performance metric, you know, wins losses, uh, margin of victory doesn't matter, quality of competition does. That they they shouldn't combine the two. They should have one standard, probably the performance, and and then seed more toward the predictive, so that that that's what they felt that they should do. And instead they decided to make a hybrid. I don't know that it's the best metric out there. I do think it's significantly better than, uh, than what they were using before, but I, there were, there were quite a few outliers in that net ranking. I mean, you had to like Arizona, no matter what they did, they couldn't fall because they lost a lot of close games and, Losing close games should matter more than it does in the predictives. But when the predictives are really paying more attention to what the final score will be than who wins or loses, uh, that's, that's the results you get. And there's a facility to that, but it's not necessarily the judgment of which are the best basketball teams. The, the best basketball teams win the most games. That's the number one thing.
0: Yeah. All right. Last bracketology question for you. Did you find that there were any, you know, kind of inherent of your own biases that you had to try to try to put aside? Not, not against teams. Like I'll I'll tell you mine just to kind of see what I'm getting at. Like the, you know, the whole, the last 10 or 12 games doesn't mean more than the rest of them do. And that makes sense from the standpoint of the resume. But it's hard when you're watching games and watching some of these teams and how they're playing, not to let that bump them up a little bit, maybe more than it should in your eyes based on some of that recency bias. So that's the one that I struggle with. So just was curious if you're in the same boat or there was something else that you just the way that you see the game that you had to kind of push aside and push out of your mind as you were doing bracketology.
1: No, I I don't think that I had any issues like that. And, and, you know, what you're talking about is something that I I sort of was the leader of the campaign to get rid of that last 10 games thing or last 12 or whatever, back in the mid two thousands, I started writing about the fact that it didn't correlate to tournament success, that it wasn't mattering. And that it was, if, if it doesn't matter in relative to tournament performance, then why is it a factor Uh, that I, and, and I thought there were some logical reasons why, it doesn't correlate to tournament success that you play your conference exclusively at the end of the year. And then they tell you, okay, you're not allowed to play your conference for the next, for the next couple of weeks. And so it, it, the, the fact that you're, that you dominate your conference, there may be somebody out there that doesn't know you well, or that you don't know well. And all of a sudden that knowledge is not a factor any longer. So I, I would say that, uh, That that was never an issue for me. And all in all, I don't think there was any specific thing that I had a problem with uh, relative to having to get, you know, I I understood what they were looking for and that's what I tried to match. You know, I I have an understanding of that from having gone through the process so many times. And so that was what I was thinking of when I sat down to do it because my whole goal was to give Fox a bracket on Selection Sunday that had every team that was in it and that, was as close to seed lines as possible. And so I tried to orient it toward that and not necessarily what I would think.
0: Yeah. I think that's always the, always the hard part is, you know, for people that want to get upset with somebody who's putting out projections, you're trying to match what the committee's doing. You may have a whole lot of problems with what the committee's done historically the last year, it doesn't really matter. Um, but you're, the exercise that you're trying to, to do well in is to actually match up with them. So I'm, I'm right there with you. And that kind of forces me to push inside some of my own, uh, my own biases. So, all right, we're just about done. But since uh, you lived in Cincinnati for for a while, I figured this was my chance as a uh, as a not not native Cincinnatian, but a, a Cincinnati resident. To uh, any opinions that you want to put out there about Cincinnati chili, this is your opportunity that no one else on this podcast will ever ask you about. So, this is your this is your chance to take a stand or abstain. It's up to you.
1: My feelings about Cincinnati chili are well known from my Twitter accounts. I, I I wouldn't give that dish to the person on the planet that I like the least. I would not do that to them. Uh, that's my feeling about it. Uh, uh, I, yeah, there's lots of great things about Cincinnati. It was a wonderful place to live for almost 20 years, uh, but the chili is not one of them.
0: There you go. All right, awesome. Well, Mike, I appreciate you joining me and uh, and pushing back the time a little bit. And uh, we will. Uh, I'm not sure which of us we're getting the rotating panel here with you the last few weeks. So who knows? Might be back to Jared next week, but uh, we'll we'll see then. But as always, uh, appreciate talking college hoops with you. And uh, hope you and your family are staying safe and healthy there in Indianapolis. And uh, we will talk to you again next week. All good.
1: Everybody, have a great week.
0: All right. Awesome. And for everybody else, uh, our next assembly call will be assembly call radio coming up on Thursday night at uh, nine o'clock Eastern as usual. So we will uh, be back to talk to you then. Thanks for joining me this week on uh, banner Monday. Sticky notes, email alerts, a string around your finger. They're just not big enough. So here's a big reminder from the California lottery. The mega millions jackpot is over 250 million. Play now. Please play responsibly. Must be 18 years or older to purchase player five.